Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Britain has just one month to get its test track and trace system up to scratch, or it risks further outbreaks of coronavirus and another nationwide lockdown. The government is running out of time. We've got schools reopening in September. Uh, we've got outbreaks of the infection across the country. And the government's got basically the months of August to get a grip on this. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. At the top there, you heard Labour leader Keir Starmer calling for the government to get the UK's track and trace system in better condition. In this episode, I'll be discussing the challenges facing the UK about containing COVID-19 and whether schools are actually going to return in less than a month with our political editor, George Parker, and health editor, Sarah Neville. And later, I'll be delving into the Johnson government's bold reforms to the planning system and whether it can unlock economic growth with our columnist Robert Shrimsley and property correspondent George Hammond. George Parker and Sarah Neville, welcome back. Morning, Seb. Morning. Now, aside from the main political news this week, one other development I want to mention with you both is about prominent women representing the British state. Dame Barbara Woodward was appointed to be our permanent representative in New York, and I think there's now prominent diplomats in DC, Canada, China, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, the UN. It's all quite impressive. George, further closer to home, do you think we're about to see our first female cabinet secretary too? Well, just a quick note on Barbara Woodward, who is, as I said, going to the UN as our representative there. She's a formidable woman, very highly regarded. And I had a really interesting chat with her in the most unusual location, which was the city of Urumqi in northwest China, in the province of Xinjiang. As you know, this is where the Uyghurs are being persecuted. And George Osborne was out there. I was on the trip. And she and I went for a walk through the streets of Urumqi, just shooting the breeze, really. I sort of got to know her reasonably well in that short space of time. I thought she was very impressive. But as you say, so far, there's been a very significant increase in the number of women representing Britain abroad, which is very good news, particularly given the Foreign Office's historically very poor attitude towards promotion of women's senior jobs. Closer to home, I'm not so sure. You know, you've got people like Antonio Romeo at the Department of International Trade, Sarah Healy at the Culture Department, both highly regarded. But the front runner, as you were reporting earlier this week, Seb, appears to be at least Chris Wormald, who's a Gove favourite and highly regarded across the civil service. And Sarah Neville, as the FT's health editor, how do you think the NHS is stacking up in terms of prominent women leading it? Well, the second most senior person in the NHS is a woman, Amanda Pritchard, who's the chief operating officer. But she hasn't had a high profile during the few months of the pandemic. And I suspect, sadly, a lot of people outside the NHS would not have heard of her. We have, however, had a couple of breakout stars through the daily Downing Street press conferences at the height of the pandemic. 
One of them is Jenny Harris, the deputy chief medical officer, who I think has uh, got something of a following for her crisp and uh, down-to-earth approach. And the other is Ruth May, the chief nursing officer, who famously was dropped from a number 10 briefing after she made clear in the pre-briefing session that she wouldn't be prepared to back Dominic Cummings, the number 10 advisor who was accused of breaking lockdown rules. Well, it's good to hear that there are more prominent women in these positions. Let's crack on with the main topic of the week and look where the UK can avoid further outbreaks of COVID-19. It's been just over two months since Boris Johnson made this pledge. We will have a test, track and trace operation uh, that will be world beating. And yes, it will be in place. It will be in place by June the 1st. But as with much about the government's response to the pandemic, it hasn't quite gone to plan. The NHS tracing app has all but disappeared, while reports suggest human tracing is failing to identify people in time to thwart the virus. This matters because come September, the Prime Minister wants all pupils back at school. He wants as much of the economy open as possible, while avoiding the prospect of further outbreaks that appear to be mushrooming across Europe. So, George, let's begin with the state of COVID-19 in the UK. So far, the virus appears to be under control. That crucial reproduction rate is below one, despite the fact lots of the economy has been opened up again. Well, that's right. And of course, the government is adopting this local lockdown approach. We've seen some expansion of that. And that's very much the hope of the British government, that you have a combination of local lockdowns, particularly in places like Leicester in the northwest of England at the moment, accompanied by a test and trace scheme. And that way, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, desperately hopes we can avoid another devastating national lockdown. But of course, a lot hinges on whether you can make the test and trace scheme work. You know, as we've just been hearing there, the evidence is that so far it's falling well below the level of expectation the government's invested in it. Now, Sarah, can you just explain to us what these issues are with the test, track and trace system? Because as I mentioned, there was meant to be an app. And earlier in this process, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, said that the app was going to be central to the tracing regime. It actually isn't. And instead, it's all relying on human tracers. Are they doing their jobs and is it working? Well, I think the short answer is no, even though Boris Johnson this week actually reaffirmed his rather bold claim that. England was going to have a world-beating test and trace system. The system is still only reaching about 80% of those who test positive, which is astonishing, really, because when you have that positive test, you have to leave contact details. So it's unclear why still 20% of people are not being reached. And Then the wider issue is how many of their contacts in turn are being reached. And reaching contacts quickly enough to control an outbreak depends on the speed with which you can get a positive test back. I was just glancing at the latest figures this morning, still only about 53% of those tests are coming back within 24 hours. Now, the government did have a big splashy announcement on Monday that they've bought millions of tests, which are promising to give a result in no more than 90 minutes. So 
they're arguing that they are getting on top of this issue, that things will improve in the coming weeks and hopefully in time for winter. But thus far, it certainly isn't living up to that prime ministerial billing. And rather worryingly, some of the data on this is going backwards rather than forwards. Sarah just gave you some of the figures there, but the data that came out this week showed that fewer contacts were being reached, 72% versus 76% in the previous week. Fewer home test results were received within 48 hours. That was 72% against 78% in the previous week. So in other words, rather than things getting better during this crucial month, in some respects, things are getting worse. And the problem that we're all grappling with here is that this has been a disaster from the very outset, the fact that Public Health England didn't have a proper test and trace scheme up and running at the start of the pandemic, then the failure of the app. And we've been here before, and there is this dawning sense, it's one of the reasons why Keir Starmer keeps going on about it, that come September, when schools are meant to be going back, this system still won't be working. George, why does the Prime Minister keep using this phrase world beating? Because it's clearly not true and it's very easily disproven when you look at how testing regimes are working in other countries. And we know Mr Johnson likes his upbeat, panglossian rhetoric. But in this instance, wouldn't it not be better to have a bit more humility and say, like the government did with testing, then in fact, look, we weren't ready. We're trying to get this up and going. We'll get it going as quickly as possible. Of course, that would make sense because that's what the British public would understand. We don't want vainglorious boasting. British people are quite practical. They accept that the government's facing a difficult situation, but they want a bit of realism. Apart from it being a misleading claim that we're building a world-beating system, it's also a huge political liability because what you will hear Keir Starmer saying over and over again, and he says it regularly, is that we don't want a world-beating system. One that works will do the trick. Now, Sarah, talking of things that are not world-beating, just fill us in on what happened with the app, because this has been a bit of a catastrophe for the NHS. We've talked about it on the podcast before, what went wrong with the NHS trying to build its own versus using a platform provided by Google and Apple. But the whole thing's just gone completely silent and nobody talks about it now. It's very odd. Well, we are still being told by officials that there will be an app by winter, But I agree, things have gone quiet in terms of the actual form that that app is going to take. As you know, belatedly, the government's digital team did accept that they needed to incorporate the technology that was being developed by Google and Apple, that they could no longer go it alone, this sort of slight sense of English exceptionalism, which had uh, determined that we were going to produce our own version of the app, that it was going to be better and more effective than those in use in other countries. But apart from the promise that it's coming, we don't have any more sense of exactly how it's being developed or the team behind it. And just to put you on the spot slightly, based on what you've seen and reported about the UK's testing and tracing regime, when do you think it will be up to scratch or will it ever be? You know, there are some inherent problems which George has touched on, which was that we in England decided to primarily make this a centralised system. Now, this is not only in contrast with other countries in Europe, but actually even within our own United Kingdom, Wales, for example, decided that the role of the centre would be to set broad standards. But apart from that, the tracing and testing system would very much be a locally run affair. And I was looking last week at what happened in Merthyr Tydfil, where they suddenly had a huge spike in cases linked to a a meatpacking factory. 
And it was really enlightening talking to the public health chiefs there about how quickly they got on top of it. And they were very much crediting that to the fact that they controlled this system on the ground, that all the contact tracers were furloughed, or most of them were furloughed council employees who really understood the culture and knew the area. Whereas in England, we've chosen to give this into the hands of the private sector. This has been an outsourced operation. And there are frequent reports, even when this system has you know, allegedly been in operation for six weeks or so, that contact tracers are, are saying they're literally making one call a week. This is not a well or efficiently run system. And I think it is deciding that everything can be run from the centre, which has um, caused a lot of the problems here. Now, George, let's look at why all this matters. And the reason Keir Starmer has been talking about the problems this week is about schools, because Downing Street seems absolutely determined to get all pupils back in schools in September. It had rather red faces earlier in the summer when schools didn't go back before the break, which I think Boris Johnson promised several times. Now they're in a battle to make sure they get back in September. What's going on there? It's obviously there's a lot of tension between the government and the teaching unions who understandably want to make sure that their members are safe when they return to school in the autumn. But the government is absolutely determined to reopen the schools, not just for the benefit of the children whose education suffered, of course, so much, but also because they see this as a way of getting people back to work if they're not having to stay at home to look after their kids. But the problem is that just saying you're going to reopen the schools is not the same as actually reopening them. And we saw that, as you mentioned earlier in the summer, where They said everyone was going to go back at least partly before the summer break. And then, of course, they didn't. And what I'm a bit worried about, I think how much has actually changed since July, particularly as we're likely to see some local outbreaks of the disease and people still worried about going back to work. That doesn't just apply to teachers. Of course, it applies right across the economy. But lots of people actually will be worried about sending their children back to school. So At the moment, we're getting Boris Johnson, he said it again this week, determined and adamant that the schools will be going back. But I think it's a question of watching this space. Sarah, are there actual health concerns about sending pupils back to schools? Because this is what the teaching unions have said this week. They've been very clear that they don't think adequate preparations have made, that schools aren't ready. There is a question, is society ready for it as well? Chris Whitty, England's chief medical officer, has been very clear on a couple of occasions about the trade-offs here and that given that we are now, in his view, at the limit of how many restrictions we can relax while still keeping the virus under control, if we're adding in schools to the mix, reopening next month, then something else may have to give. And Anne Longfield, the Children's Commissioner, was very clear this week about what she felt should give, and that was pubs restaurants and non-essential shops. She said very clearly that they should close before schools closed. I think on the science of it, small children seem to spread the virus less than older kids, whether it's because of body size or because little children are obviously not going out and about in the way that teenagers are. But even though very few children or teenagers get seriously ill from the virus. The concern is the older generations of their own families who can be affected and thus that the children can be vectors for wider community transmission. I mean, I think the real issue for the government here perhaps is that Boris Johnson has made so much of his levelling up agenda 
And what we've seen in the six months or so that some children have been entirely out of school is huge disparities between children of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Private schools have been astonishingly efficient at running Zoom curriculums. Middle-class children generally will have access to a laptop and perhaps a quiet room where they can do their lessons. But of course, children at the other end of the socioeconomic scale haven't had access to technology. And the huge worry in government must be that poorer children are falling so far behind their better off counterparts that this could really affect an entire generation of children, limiting their careers and their lives for years to come. And finally, George, I think this does speak to the wider issue about the economy here, because inside Downing Street, there is a huge determination to try and get things moving as quickly as possible. And advisors that I spoke to this week who are close to the prime minister, they were saying that you cannot get the economy moving at any reasonable rate until you have schools open again. I think the one thing they're just very fearful of, and this goes back to the testing and tracing system, is having to do another national lockdown because the first one was very expensive. I have no idea how and if the UK could afford another nationwide lockdown. Trying to make sure the economy is going and deliver that levelling up agenda, it's a pretty big task. It's going to be a huge test for the Chancellor Rishi Sunak this winter. Yes, it is. And the people in the Treasury are sort of doing a lot of forward planning for very difficult political autumn, some very tough decisions the government's going to have to make. You know, understandably, everyone's looking for the magic bullet that will get the economy getting back to normal and reopening the schools is seen as part of that. But as you say, the possibility that you have a resurgence of the disease in certain areas, another national lockdown would be a disaster. There was some slightly promising news um, on the economic front this week from the Bank of England, which said that although They expected the full recovery to take it longer than expected and probably take until the end of next year before we return to pre-crisis levels. The unemployment would peak at around seven and a bit percent, so a bit lower than they previously forecast. But there's a lot of uncertainty about this. And Rishi Sunak, who's been on a visit to Scotland this week, is under huge pressure to consider extending that furlough scheme, which is due to expire in October. And that'll be one of the big decisions he'll have to make even if he doesn't extend it across the board, should he extend it in local areas? Should he extend it for another month or two? All of these things are going to be weighing very heavily on him. And it looks to me like somebody probably needs a bit of a holiday before a very, very difficult autumn. George and Sarah, thanks very much. Thanks, Seb. Thanks, Seb. Build, build, build is the mantra of the Johnson government. The way it hopes to achieve that is through planning reform. Mention the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act to any Thatcherite Conservative and you will see their faces boil. The Prime Minister is scrapping that legislation in the biggest shake-up in England's planning law since the Second World War. Robert Jenrick, the Housing Secretary, told the BBC this week his problems with the current system. It takes up to seven years to produce one of the local building plans and it can take around five years then to get permission and have spades in the ground on a housing development. We think that's just too long if we're going to build the homes that the country needs. But opinion is divided on how this will affect the green and pleasant lands. Will it see beautiful new streets akin to Bath and Bourneville? Or will it see ugly skyscrapers littering the suburban lands around cities? And how will any of this help Mr Johnson's levelling up agenda?
George Hammond, as the FT's property correspondent, I'm sure you're well-versed in England's planning laws. Do you think Mr Jenrick is right that the current system needs scrapping? Thanks, Seb. I think there is consensus that the, the current system is very dated. It goes back to 1947. And in this kind of wonderful Johnsonian rhetoric that came with the publication of these proposals on Thursday, He's talking about a house that has been patched up and extended and repaired over the last 70 odd years to get us to what we have now, which is a quite complex planning system, which I think is often seen as slowing down development, slowing down the delivery of new homes. And I think that is widely accepted as a bit of an issue. But what this does is scrap it and it completely kicks that system aside and tries to to build a new house on top of it to follow on the Johnson analogy. And that has run into uh, some opposition, as as you might imagine some of that coming from the Tory councils themselves. Now, Robert Shrimsley, if you speak to anybody in Downing Street, they'll say planning reform is vital to their plans for the government. Could you explain why they think that? Yes, absolutely. The fundamental reason is that there's not enough houses for people who want them in Britain and not enough affordable houses. And the Conservatives are the party of people with a stake in society. And if you have no capital, if you have no assets, if you have no home, you have less of a stake in society, you're less likely to be a conservative. Now, that's that's a cynical point of view, and it isn't all about that. It's also a belief that people are just crying out for homes, particularly younger voters, and their parents are looking at the fact that they have to move away if they want to have their own home. And homes, particularly in the South and Southeast, are unaffordable. So there is a, a real important logic behind this, and the country has failed to get to grips with house building for a very long time. So they're looking at a, a planning system and saying, this is too cumbersome, we need to sweep it away. Um, thing that I have to say I found very strange about this set of reforms is that the amount of time it's going to take. Now, in one sense, that's good because this is complicated stuff and the detail is not all there yet. But you're talking about some proposals that have been published this week. They're going out to consultation. Then they'll be played with and modified. Then there's got to be primary legislation. And then even if everything runs smoothly for the government, you're talking about getting into the middle of next year. And then local councils have two and a half years to come up with their new plans. So the one thing I think that is strange about all of this is that it really isn't going to make much of a difference before the next election. Now, George, the two phrases that most people will recognise are the Greenbelt and Brownfield side. Greenbelt are meant to be the lovely, beautiful parts of England that you can't build on, and brown sites are the ugly ones that you do want to encourage building. They're going, they're going to be replaced with growth, renewal and protected. Can you explain what the difference is between these and who's going to decide which bits of land fall into those three categories? So what the government is suggesting is that local councils in their plans divide their land into three zones. So as you say, growth, renewal, protection. And on growth zones, you set out to develop and then there is a presumption that whatever is put forward will get planning permission. And that's the kind of, that's the part that has been contentious because people obviously value their ability to come in and say, I'm against this particular individual scheme and I want to make my voice heard. And they feel that this is going to strip them of their ability to do that. Then on the other side of things, there's protection, which is effectively saying you can't build at all. This is a part of our ward that we don't want touched. And then in between, there is renewal, all of which seems very straightforward. But the other contentious part of these proposals is that central government is saying to local councils or is proposing saying to local councils, we have a national housing target, which is currently 300,000, and we need you to build a certain amount of homes in each council. You know, this is a kind of centralization that is not necessarily in keeping with what you'd expect from this party. And indeed, 
when the Labour government in 2002 suggested doing a similar thing, they were dismissed as Stalinist proposals by the Tory opposition. So it's, um, it's a bit of a turnaround for them. This is the thing I find most striking here, because I can remember David Cameron in the coalition government tried to reform planning laws, um, not quite as radical as this, but along the same lines. And it was the Daily Telegraph who ran this campaign, Save Our Green Lands, because I was working at the Telegraph as a reporter at that time. What you're basically saying is the housing crisis is down to you, Seb. Absolutely will take responsibility for that. But I do think when you look at how opinions have changed, it really does feel as if the Tories have accepted, if they're going to win over younger voters, if not the youngest voters, they do have to build. And that requires leaving some of that opposition they had, as George was saying, behind them. Well, some Tories have accepted that, particularly the Conservatives at the centre of government. Whether the Conservatives and councils are going to accept it is an altogether different matter. And if I offer you one example, we should think about the campaign of opposition to HS2. You might have a sense of what this is going to be like in every conservative council in the country, because obviously the more well-heeled areas are the ones that are going to resist the most fiercely, and they're going to be the ones with the most land that's likely to be demanded of them. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see how this plays out in reality. And I would expect quite a few modifications to the principles of this reform as it rubs up against conservative council after conservative council, which also therefore means conservative MP after conservative MP. So my sense is This is a reform which at the highest level looks like it will work and would appeal to central government because it means they can set a target and just go and say to councils, just go and do it. I think once we get into the nitty gritty of this, the politics is going to change. Now, the main concern about this, George, has been from the Labour Party and from people in the industry who have said that, in fact, this is a big liberalisation cutting red tape, to use that favourite phrase. And it may, in fact, just result in lots of ugly buildings. Now, when this was set out, this these new reforms, the government referenced its Building Beautiful Commission that was done by the Conservative philosopher Roger Scruton and was released last year. And it says the new system will include a, quote, model design code to make sure that you don't just have lots of big, ugly buildings. Is that actually going to happen? And are those concerns in the industry well-founded? I think there's there's a real tension at the heart of this that is, you know, you're slashing away regulation and you want to up build rates. And that's, you know, that's obviously the core of these proposals. But then on the other hand, there's all of this rhetoric around building beautiful and no less than 52 mentions in the document that came out Thursday of beauty or beautiful. And I mean, obviously, one issue with that is whose definition of beauty and how is that being decided? But the other is that if you're telling developers to put their foot on the accelerator and we need housing, we need it everywhere, we need all types, then inevitably, you open yourself up to criticism that poor quality housing is going to be delivered. In July, we had the government coming forward and and saying that they were making it easier to convert offices and shops into residential flats which is something that has been controversial in the past because it creates these rabbit hutch homes or uh, they've been described as slums of the future. And they're basically kind of, you know, substandard, don't meet space requirements and have been recognised by local planners in research commissioned by the government itself as poor quality. So there is definitely a tension there. I mean, the government has said they want new Bournevilles, new Baths, new Belgravias but they might well end up with new bedsets, I think is the concern of, of the local planners and of, of the opposition. And Robert, again, Mr. Jenrick has been out and about saying this thing is going to be thoroughly democratic and local residents will have a big say in all this. Is that fundamentally a good thing? Because lots of people are just going to say, no, I don't want anything built near me. I want to just keep the land exactly as it is. 
Well, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's a fundamental tension at the heart of this. If you allow all of the issues of house building to be devolved down to small local areas, you're always going to struggle to meet targets. Although it is actually worth pointing out that a lot of the councils and builders say that the problems of house building are not actually about planning. There's something like a million planning permissions already out there, which which have been granted and not built upon. But I think if you're going to meet a national target at some point, you're going to have to override some local wishes. On the other hand, and as George has said, in, in, in some of these areas, you're talking about essentially giving people no longer the right to object to building right on their own doorstep and things that materially affect their lives. So it's a very, very difficult balance to strike. And we're going to wait to see a lot more detail on this. And the detail is what's going to really determine whether this idea is a good idea in practice or only in theory. And George, we obviously need to put this into the context of the wider economic change that are going to result from coronavirus, because there's huge questions about the future of city centres with lots of people opting to still work from home and a bigger focus going on people's suburban lives. You know, how does this planning reform feed into that? Because I know the government's very focused as well on the future of the high street, which is a big problem in those left behind towns and villages that voted Tory for the first time. So the government really wants to reinvigorate those places, but it's also dealing with what could be a major refactoring of of the urban environment. Yeah, and there's kind of logic in it from a certain distance that you have high streets hollowing out and you have a housing crisis. And so, you know, let's turn shops into houses and let's let's solve all these problems simultaneously. But I mean, in terms of the the impacts of coronavirus and how that impacts where we're going to live, there was some evidence immediately after the lockdowns that people were looking to move out of the cities and into suburbia and, and beyond. And that may continue, but I think at this point, it's, it's too early really to draw any hard conclusions on that. How the planning reforms kind of knit into that is, is yet to be seen because, as, as Robert touched on, these are very ambitious proposals, but actually we're not really going to see the impact of these for, for some years to come, potentially not even until the next parliament, because We have the primary legislation, we have the conflict that we're expecting within the the Conservative Party and between the opposition over these proposals. And in fact, I think there's some quite sensible suggestions that in the medium term, we might actually see housing delivery fall because we have the kind of lingering effects of the Brexit negotiations. We obviously have coronavirus, which has stopped builders from building for for three or four months. And we're going to see the end of, of the help to buy scheme, which has been a very important component of of getting developers on site and, and building. So informed opinion thinks that we may have two or three years where, where housing delivery falls from what it is at the moment, which is around 241,000, and falls further away from that 300,000 national target that, that the government has set. Well, politically, Robert, I can see how this all plays into Boris Johnson's re-election message, because come 2024, he's going to be saying to the electorate, look, we've made a lot of progress on these things. We've got past the coronavirus pandemic. We've done planning reform. And after a little bump, we've beaten off those lefty Labour councils. Now vote for me again to give me another five years. And by the end of that, we'll have the housing crisis sorted. You know, do you think that argue, you can see how that argument's going to play out? Do you think it'll work? No, I don't think it will work if that's the argument that's being made. And I don't think that people are impressed by governments saying, we're going to get you houses tomorrow, because this has been a pledge that was in the last election manifesto, and it's been a pledge with every government for a long time. And if the outcome of the, these five first years or four and a half first years of Boris Johnson is falling house building or house building pretty much where it was, then people are not going to be wildly impressed. And even if there are some shovels in the ground by the time we get to the next election, they're going to say, well, we've heard all this before. So I don't think it's going to be quite as convincing to say, and we're going to do it next time. I think it's going to have to have some evidence of 
success in this already for people to believe it. And this, I think, is the fundamental issue for the government across everything it's doing at the moment, which is that it's been terrific at rhetoric. It's been brilliant at campaigning. It's been very good at crafting messages and telling people, yes, this government gets what you want and we're going to do it. By the time of the next election, they're going to be judged on their actual record. And so after four and a half, five years, people are going to look at this government and say, well, what have you actually done so far? And I think promising something in the next five years is not of itself going to be enough. Well, George and Robert, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Cheers, sir. Cheers, all. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Plus, we do suggest you check out our latest interview special with Sajid Javid. I spoke to the former Chancellor about how to fix the UK economy after the coronavirus lockdown, why he thinks taxes shouldn't be raised, and the need for the civil service to be more diverse. You can find the episode on your usual feed for Payne's Politics. This podcast was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder, Liam Nolan, and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.